0: The following is a conversation between Jim Collins, author of Good to Great and the Social Sectors and Turning the Flywheel, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM in New York City.
1: My next guest is the author, or the co-author, of six best-selling books that have sold, in total, more than 10 million copies. Forbes magazine selected him as one of the 100 greatest living business minds. And much to the good fortune of the social sector, he has spent considerable time researching and studying it. He is Jim Collins, an entrepreneurial professor, if you will, and the author of Good to Great, Good to Great in the Social Sectors, and his latest monograph, which is called Turning the Flywheel. Good evening, Jim, and welcome to the Business of Giving.
2: Uh, It's really a a pleasure to be here with you, Denver, on the show.
1: Thank you. Uh, You operate a management lab in Boulder, Colorado and have carved out a really unique role in the world of business and social enterprise. Jim, how did you go from being a Stanford professor to this very distinctive calling?
2: Uh, It's it's uh, kind of a circuitous journey, but uh, I was teaching entrepreneurship and small business uh, at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I had had the great good fortune of mentors who had uh, given me the opportunity to to do that at a relatively young age i was uh, 30 when i began teaching there and i had marvelous students and i just always really been driven by curiosity and wanting to pursue really big questions such as you know what makes a great company or a great organization tick uh what makes them built to last and those kinds of questions uh would would need to best be answered in really big multi-year research projects and so while I was getting started at Stanford and Jerry Porus, who was a great mentor, mm-hmm. gave me this marvelous research method that we developed together where we look at kind of match pairs of organizations, same situations, but different results and asking what was different. Eventually, I came to the conclusion that I wanted to pursue a path that was not unlike a lot of the entrepreneurs that I'd studied. I'd always used to say to my students, hey, you don't necessarily need to be at IBM to be in business, you could do your own. Mm-hmm. And one day, my students were sort of saying, well, why do you need to be at a university to do really interesting research projects and to, uh, to teach? And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, that's a really interesting question. That's a really good question. Touche to them. (laughs) uh, Eventually, I decided to bet on my own research projects and step out and uh, go from being a a professor of entrepreneurship, if you will, to being an entrepreneurial professor on my own. Mm -hmm.
1: Let me pick up what you just said about Jerry Porras and the method, because unlike many other business thinkers, Jim, your work has really endured. And I talk to people, and they'll speak about good to great as if it was published yesterday and not nearly 20 years ago, and that's probably because the principles therein are timeless. So I'd be interested in learning a little bit more about that methodology and how you go about doing this work that leads to such enduring concepts.
2: Well, fabulous. Actually, uh, uh, let me just take a quick moment on this because there is a method, and uh, Jerry Porras, who... Uh, was one of my great strokes of who luck. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think luck comes in many forms, but who luck is one of the best. I was a senior uh, professor when I was 30 years old starting to teach at Stanford, and we teamed up together to ask the question, what really separates those that go from startups to become enduring great visionary companies? And the question was, how would you study that? Mm-hmm. And w- there were two elements of it. The first was to realize that you can learn a lot from history, that you can find companies that became enduring great companies. You can take, say, Walt Disney and his garage and then go from his startup all the way up to Becoming the Disney that we have today, Uh, or you could do that with a 3M, or you could do that with any number of kinds of companies, and they were all once startups. So you study them over the course of history, just like you'd study the history of the United States. Mm -hmm. And but then there was, and, and history is a great teacher because organizations evolve, right? There's no single slice of time; you have to look at it step by step. But then Jerry introduced this really important idea. So what we need to have is a control set. Now, in science, you would do double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials. Right. But you can't do that in management. But Jerry had the brilliant insight to say, we could use the method where you go back and say, at the birth of an industry, you essentially kind of have a randomized trial. Mm-hmm. You have pairs of companies that were in the same spot, same time, same opportunity, same resources, same moment in history. And then one became great, and the other did not, coming off of the same kind of circumstances, almost like twin studies. And Jerry said, if we then not just look at what the successful ones share in common, but what they share in common that is different from the comparison set that didn't become great coming off the same circumstances, and you really focus on what was different not just what did the successful share in common. You will then see what the differentiating principles are that separate the enduring great from the others. And the key was what Jerry really pushed us to do early on was to say we're not going to look for best practices of the moment. Mm-hmm. We are going to look for enduring principles that will always be true, And it turns out they're not even business principles, because if you're studying great companies to not great companies, companies drops out. And what you're really looking at is great versus not great. So when we talk about level five leadership, or we talk about preserve the core, stimulate progress, we talk about the flywheel, those are not business ideas, those are greatness ideas, which is why they migrated to the social sectors.
1: Fascinating. And... I guess the reason you did study companies is not because they were companies, is because there was data there that you were exactly able to compare.
2: right. So my own self-perception is that while many in the world would see me as a business thinker or a business writer, I never saw myself that way. I saw myself as somebody who wanted to understand what would separate a truly great and then potentially enduring enterprise of any type, mm-hmm. business or non-business. And... I needed a way to study it, and the beauty of business is, by using that kind of match-pair method, is amazing amounts of data. Yeah. You can get balance sheets, income statements, proxy reports going for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and it's all normalized to certain types of reporting standards, so you have marvelous amounts of very good data from which to draw your conclusions.
1: Transcripts of conference calls uh, with investors, everything in the world. Exactly, exactly, and that's why the work takes so long. People
2: often ask, why does it take six years to do a research project? And the reason is because you have to study everything from inception over the course of decades, and you read everything that's ever been published by or about the company. And uh, and that just gives you it's 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 massive. I mean, it can take three or four months just to process one case study of working virtually full time. Yeah.
1: But that, of course, is one of the reasons your work is so enduring and so relevant, even as the world around us has uh, apparently changed and evolved. Well, after you wrote Good to Great, you subsequently came out with a monograph titled Good to Great and the Social Sectors. Now, why did you believe that a separate monograph was needed for the social sector? So, Denver, this, this was a kind of a
2: surprise uh, how it came about. It was a surprise to me. So after Good to Great, which came after Built to Last, so there was Built to Last and then there was Good to Great, and we mm-hmm. had these two pieces of work out there, and they had powerful principles within them. Uh, we noticed something fascinating at our research lab in Boulder. Our incoming correspondence increasingly was coming from non-business. We were getting uh, emails and questions coming from symphony orchestras and K-12 schools and museums and healthcare systems and uh, people in philanthropy, and uh, they they came first by saying that they'd read the material and found it powerful. And I concluded that somewhere between thirty and fifty percent of the readership of Good to Great came from non-business. So that was point one. But Mm -hmm. then the second was they kept asking questions. They believed in the principles, level five, first two, some of the things we'll talk about. But they said, we really want to know, Jim, what you think is how those principles might apply in a different way when you step into the different dynamics of the social sectors. So I thought, I'm going to take that on. I'll just share with you something interesting. When I first went in to do it, I wrote an entire monograph on Good to Great in the Social Sectors, spent an entire year on it, sent it out to critical readers, many of whom were in the social sectors, and the feedback that came back, because I listened very closely to people, was I needed to throw it out and start over. (laughs) And I literally threw out the entire thing and started over. Why did they say that? Because I made a mistake in the first version, and later of course in the the later version really really uh, came from a different view, I came at it with uh, thinking too much that like a business person
3: mm.
2: i and and one of the things I learned early on was. You have to come, if you come, if your primary grounding originally was in the world of of like teaching at a business school, uh, working with companies and so forth, you need to come to the social sectors not with a sense of that you know. You need to come with a tremendous sense of humility that you don't know. And then there was another thing that I learned from them, which is business is the easy case. Business is the easy case. Running a major company is an order of magnitude easier and less complex than building a great social sector enterprise.
1: Why is that? And
2: I didn't understand that. And then once they taught me, I, was like, I need to go back and really think, how is it different? How is it harder?
1: How is it harder?
2: Well, there's multiple ways uh, that it's harder. So let's, let's hit a couple of them. One is, think about this. In business, you have these predefined definitions of success, Mm -hmm. return on invested capital, return on equity, return on assets, right, cash flow metrics. They're widely accepted, and they're easily measurable. And also, money in the business sector is both an input and an output. It's both a means to success and a measure of success and a fuel for success, right? But in the social sectors, money is not a definition of success, and it shouldn't be. Right, Money is an input, but not an output. So then if you're running a symphony orchestra, as, as, as my friend Tom Morris was teaching me about the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra when he was there, you have to be very rigorous in thinking, what does it mean for us to know that we are doing better? Mm-hmm. And if we just measure that in ticket sales, we're missing the point. Are we playing a more beautiful Mahler symphony? How would we know? Are we are able to take on a wider range of the repertoire? Are we able to bring people in to not just hear a great Beethoven Symphony Three, which of course still will give you goosebumps, <laughs> but can, will people also take on difficult, dissonant 20th century music? Will they sit for a 12-tone? And will they do it in a way where they walk away saying, thank you so much for exposing me to a musical experience that's challenging? Yeah. is that You have to think those are definitions of progress and success and results, and you have to think very hard about what that is. That's a different level of thinking than do we simply have a higher return on invested capital.
1: Yeah, and your subhead to that monograph was Why Business Thinking is Not the Answer, which has to make it my favorite subtitle of any book that I've ever encountered because, you know, I hear that all the time. Uh, You need to run these organizations more like a business. And I think we found out a little bit that it's just not that easy, and perhaps, you know, we have some evidence of that from some of the Silicon Valley guys who are going to fix education and try to intervene in a way which was much more like a business and really hit some walls and recognize it's just not that simple it's a little bit more complex
2: well one thing that, it, that the reason i put that subtitle on there about why business thinking is not the answer is that first of all that was a lesson i had to really learn mm-hmm. uh... and why it took me a whole second year to rewrite the monograph to the lens of why business thinking is not the answer and, and and what I, what I really uh, – and I want to thank my critical readers for really basically making me really embrace that and see it. But, but what I also came to see is this. Think about it this way. Most businesses are average mm-hmm. by definition, right? Most businesses are average businesses. They're not great. Yeah. And so if you just took the practices of average businesses and imported them to the social sectors – all you're doing is exporting the practices of averageness. Why would you want to do that? <laughs> so the real question is not business versus social. That's, a, that's an unfortunate frame. Rather, the key difference is great versus good, great versus not great, great versus mediocre. So when you talk about the principle of level five leadership or the principle of a culture of discipline, A culture of discipline is not a principle of business. It is a principle of greatness. And a great company will have a culture of discipline. But so will a great hospital really getting disciplined about how do we know at lowering costs and increasing patient outcomes, we're doing that in an increasingly disciplined way. And and, and you will find a culture of discipline in any great kind of organization, business or non-business. And you won't find it in a mediocre one, business or non business.
1: That is a wonderful distinction. You've mentioned a couple times now level five leaders, and a yes. social sector leader that you have great admiration for and probably would consider to be level five is Wendy Kopp. Yes. Tell our listeners uh, what a level five leader is, and then who is and what makes her so exceptional.
2: Exactly. So I think there are two things we can do with Level 5. But first, let's teach it through the lens of of, uh, Wendy Kopp, who, uh, full disclosure, is a friend. Uh, I I admire her tremendously. I've known her for years. Uh, But the essence – so first, what is the essence of a Level 5 leader? What we found in our research when we did Good to Great was we were looking at the Good to Great companies versus the comparisons and asking what's different. And what we found is that both of the companies had leaders – but that the good to great companies, when they made that inflection leap, had these level five leaders. And the comparison companies had a had more egocentric leaders. And what the level five leader is is a leader who is first uh, ambitious for and in leading in service to a cause that is bigger than they are. Ah. That's number one. And then they have this blend of kind of approach, which is of a personal humility combined with an indomitable will (laughs) and it's this marvelous combination of they're humble enough to always learn they the humility to put themselves in service to cause the humility uh, to basically say i need to always be getting better i don't necessarily have all the answers i am not the center of the universe this is not about me it's not about how i look it's not about what i get or how famous i am right that's the personal humility but the indomitable will is and i will do anything whatever it takes for the cause that we are serving that's the five now let's look at wendy Kopp she's coming out of princeton mm-hmm. she writes her senior thesis on education passionate deep belief that every kid in first starting in this country and she's now worried about the whole world every kid deserves to get to age 18 with a solid k-12 education independent of the neighborhood in which you live or the family to which you are born, period, full stop, no (laughs) Right. And she takes that, and then she comes up with this idea to get people to want to give up at least two years of their lives in service, almost like being deployed, to teach in our most underserved schools in this country from Harlem and the Bronx to the Mississippi Delta and the poorest parts of this country. And she gets kids who have lots of opportunities in life to sign up to do this and then to have education part of their passion for life. And the beauty of it is she does it with no power. See, this is what a level five is able to do. James McGregor Burns had that wonderful thing, which is that leadership only exists if people follow, when they have the freedom otherwise to not follow.
1: Yeah, yeah. I had Aaron Hurst on the show, and he had a great line, Jim. He said that you've never managed, really managed, until you've managed volunteers. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So here, here's this. Here you have somebody who has, doesn't have power,
2: to tell all these young people to sign up to go into the schools. But what she has is the cause that draws them in to really dedicate themselves for that time. So Wendy is a classic example of a level five. And now there are many level fives, and one of the things you mentioned earlier about what's more difficult about the social sectors versus the business sector, I came to see something interesting, which is there's two types of fives. There's the executive level five mm-hmm. and the legislative level five. The executive level five is the one who has enough power to just simply make things happen. If you're Sam Walton at Walmart in 1986 and you decide that you want to move the company to be able to go into, a, you know, into California, you can do so because you're Sam. It's your company. You have the concentrated executive power. That's pretty easy. But in the social sectors – As one of my friends who ran a a major university put it, he said, you know, in my environment, I'm managing and leading a thousand points of no. (laughs) And so you think about the, the power is diffuse. And so in a sense, you have to be like a legislative level five where you're one of many who have pieces of power. No one has enough power by themselves to just make something happen. But a lot of people have enough negative power to stop things. So what that means is you have to be almost like a great senator than a great president.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of business leaders who go into government have such a difficult time because they're just not used to that pushback or having to build that kind of a consensus. It was funny. I had Tony Marks on the show from the New York Public Library recently, and he wanted to do something. He saw this kid uh, up in the Bronx who was sitting outside a library. And uh, he asked him why he was there after hours, and he said it was the only place he was able to get the Internet because he didn't have it in his house. And he said he went back to the New York Public Library down at 42nd Street and was thinking on the way there, what committees do I have to take this, uh, you know, run this by, and had this delightful moment where he said, no committees. I can actually do this. So it's <laughs> <laughs> surprise themselves. So it's funny in terms of that's what you need to to do. Uh, very often in the nonprofit sector, and it's a really difficult adjustment for for guys and gals who've been running companies to go into the sector and realize that it's more complicated to get things done than just uh, by by edict.
2: And, well, and you know this this question of if you don't have enough let's say there's 100 points of power that you could put on a power map, if you're the CEO of a company, you may well have enough points of power to just simply, you don't have to worry about that. But if you don't have that, you have to somehow, instead of making the decision, you have to architect the conditions for the decision to happen. Yep. And that is a fundamentally very difficult task, which is why, in my view, and Peter Drucker said this many years ago, but I came to the same conclusion looking at it, that the leaders in the social sectors have more to teach business leaders about what true leadership is than the other way around.
1: So interesting. You uh, talked a moment ago about the first who, then what principle, and in speaking to a lot of leaders in the sector, boy, they'll put as one of their top two or three challenges recruiting and retaining talent. And yep. we know it's important to get the right people on the bus, but we're in a competitive market right now. There are now purpose-driven businesses that are competing for people who really want to have meaning in their life, and they just can't compete sometimes on salaries or benefits. Um, what do they need to do to succeed in getting those right people in their organization? Well, so let's talk very briefly about what the what the first two principle
2: is all about,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and the, the key word is the word first. So it, it, the, the, the thing we found in our research is is not that people just focused on making sure that they had the right talent. That wasn't the finding. The finding was that they first and always focused on getting the right people, what we called the right people on the bus, before they even knew where the bus was going to go. Yeah, And that everything in life is a question of are you going to come at a situation as a what question or as a who question? So first who means it, it, if we don't if we are, do not have the discipline to take however long it takes to get the right person, and if we have to leave a seat unfilled, we will do so. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a discipline. The discipline of first who is always to say it is always first about get the right people, then figure everything else out. And so, so, you know, it's interesting. Let me just share a personal version of how the shift from first what to first who uh, can happen. Please do. Um, my, my wife, uh, now we've been married 39 years, uh, a number of years ago had a cancer incident. Mm-hmm. And uh, being a data type person who tends to respond to the world by trying to understand it, I responded first by reading everything I could get my hands on about how cancer works. And I'm reading about the molecular biology and DNA and RNA and different kinds of treatments and how cells mutate and all this kind of stuff, as if that was going to be helpful. And finally, Joanne said to me, why don't you read your own book? <laughs> and what she said was, you're spending too much time on the what. Yeah. Don't spend any time on the what. Don't spend any time on what's the treatment, what's the schedule, what's, how does the disease work. Why don't, Jim, you focus on helping me get the right who? Mm -hmm. If we get the right oncologist, if we get the right surgeon, if we get the right radiology consultants, if we get the right people, we're going to get the best answers. Why don't you change where you put your time? Help me build the bus. Now, that's a simple personal example, yeah. but in everything, if you're a leader of a nonprofit, if you're a leader in government, if you're a leader in a business, if you're a leader in any walk of life, every chance you face a fork in the road, ask yourself, how can I change what seems to be a what question into a who question? The second is our friend Tom Tierney. You and I have both talk. We admire Tom tremendously. A bridge man. Bridge and he also created the, this thing called Bridge Star, which is right. about people. Mm-hmm. And Tom believes, uh, having spent so much time in the sector, that yes, it is always hard, no matter where you are, to get enough of the right people. But that doesn't change the fact that people don't spend enough time on focusing on getting the right people, and your the cost of capitulating to letting the wrong person sit in a seat for the sake of expediency so far exceeds letting the seat go unfilled until you find the right person that you should always exercise the discipline to leave a seat unfilled than to act too quickly and put the wrong person in it.
1: Yeah, a great practitioner of that would be Gail McGovern, who is the CEO of the American Red Cross, and she said she will limp along with a vacancy for ever how long it takes to get the right person in the seat and she yeah. is really uh, aware of the uh, the price you pay when you just try to fill it and you get that pressure sometimes it's been open he, she doesn't care I'm gonna get the right person there and it's really worked out well. Uh, well I think that the uh, um, the the critical thing for any any
2: leader building an enterprise uh, is to first of all embrace that and second, Uh, to really exercise uh, the discipline wherever you can. We write in the monograph about Roger Briggs, who ran Mm -hmm. uh, a science department at a public school here in Colorado. And he uh, really felt that the decision about whether a teacher gets tenure should shift from the default is no – until the teacher proves they can be a great teacher, Mm -hmm. rather than the default is yes, unless something terrible happens. And he, in building his science department, applied that. And what happened is sometimes it would take a while for finally the right tenured seat to be filled, but once it was, then they were there, he would perpetuate those good decisions for a long time, and he built this marvelous little minibus of a spectacular science department Mm -hmm. by exercising that discipline.
1: Let me ask you about Built to Last in the context of legacy organizations in the social sector. And, you know, I've had an opportunity to speak to some of the CEOs of organizations that are 75 and 100 and 150 years old and even have gone to visit their offices, and I see some that are really embracing change and are moving along quite nicely as the environment and the world around them changes, and others that just seem to be stuck. They just... uh, won't make the changes that they need or or they can't what is the difference between an organization that can do that and one that is just paralyzed
2: so so first just for uh, for folks who like to go back and find some of your shows I think two really great examples of that in your uh, in your show uh, that uh, this very conversation came up of folks who are doing this well uh, were I believe it's Dan Weiss of the Metropolitan uh, mm-hmm. Museum and Simon Woods of Los Angeles Phil yeah I, and in both of those cases, uh, they were talking about one of the key principles that um, uh, they were using their own words, but essentially what we found in Built to Last. So Built to Last asked the question, what separates a truly visionary organization, a truly great organization, not just over the course of one leadership cycle or you know a single decade, but multiple decades uh, through multiple generations of leaders and multiple generations of societal change, technological change, and so forth? And, and after six years of research... Um, we essentially distilled it down to uh, a couple of key principles. And the core key principle is this idea called preserve the core Mm -hmm. and stimulate progress. And as I was listening to both of those shows, I was really struck by they are really talking about preserve the core, stimulate progress. And you have to do both. So one side is... You have a core set of values and a core reason for being. You know, we're going we're gonna to put music in people's ears that's going to transform their emotions and their brain. Uh, we're going to uh, uh, allow everybody to have an experience of some of the most extraordinary art in the world that could transform uh, their view of everything, right? You have that sort of core sense and the principles that you live by that you will never change. That's preserve the core. But over the course of decades to centuries, right? You, you, the world changes. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to the other side, which is all about stimulate progress. It's a big genius of the ant: Preserve the core on one side. Stimulate progress means, well, you know, we need to be thinking about, I remember uh, Simon talking about, we need to think about what kinds of people do we have in the orchestra? What kinds of music do we play? How do we uh, connect in with uh, current types of technology? All these types of things. That's all about stimulating progress, and the ones that do it well over time are living constantly in the, in, the, in the genius of the end of preserve the core and stimulate progress. Here's the big point. People confuse core values and core purpose with operating practices, and what you have to do is to separate those. So let's take the world of academia. Mm-hmm. There's a core value – of intellectual freedom of inquiry. That should never change. That's preserve the core. But there's a practice of academic tenure, which is you can't get fired for what you think. Well, that's a practice. And now if someday it turned out that the practice was no longer helpful, you have to be able to say, no, we're going to change the practice and we're going to keep the core value So as these storied organizations, great museums, great orchestras, uh, great universities, uh, great foundations evolve, they need to always be able to say we need to be very clear what are the values and what are merely the practices. And they may look like sacred practices, but they are still practices, and therefore they can change.
1: And that is the genius of the end, because I think so many folks live with Preserve the core or stimulate process. Exactly right. And And the
2: whole key to the concept is preserve the core ferociously, fanatically, (laughs) intensely, right, passionately, and at the same time, all the time, relentlessly, passionately, energetically stimulate progress, both every day, all the time. So
1: well said. You know, another recent focus in the sector has been making big bets for social change. And I think folks don't want to mitigate a problem anymore, but they want to really solve it. And this has been promoted by the likes of Bridgespan and the MacArthur Foundation. How should a social sector organization and so importantly, a donor go about making an intelligent big bet?
2: So, uh, you know, one of the things that, that we've learned in our research, and this is something that my colleague Morton Hansen and I uh, found in, in uh, what became the book uh, Great by Choice, where we were looking at who does well in really turbulent and disruptive environments. Uh, and, and one of the things that, uh, that we found is this thing we call bullets and cannonballs, and mm-hmm. the idea that you – you fire bullets, which are small calibrated shots. Like if you had a ship bearing down on you, uh, you, you then, uh, you, you know, you take a shot at the ship with a bullet, and it misses, but you reset again, and you fire another bullet, and it misses, and then you recalibrate, and then ping, you hear the side of the ship. And then you take your gunpowder, and you put it in a big cannonball, mm-hmm. and you fire the cannonball on the on the ter- calibrated line of sight. And what we found with a, a, a lot of... Uh, companies that struggled and failed is they fired uncalibrated cannonballs, right? And they just splashed in the water, and then they were at a gunpowder, and they were in trouble. Or they didn't fire enough bullets to find new things that would work, that would allow them to fire the cannonball. And what we found, a real punchline in our work, and this is going to sound like heresy, I don't mean it to, but we did not find that just being innovative, more innovative, separated the great companies from the others. That, that we did not find that everybody innovated what we found was it was the ability to scale empirically proven innovations the ability to calibrate with a bullet and then to scale it into a cannonball is what better separated the great winners than just the pure amount of innovation so now let's take that over to the social sector mm-hmm. what we have if if you the if you think of all the experiments that are happening out there, say what's happening when somebody does something really great in a school? Uh, somebody does something really great in a small museum. Somebody does something really interesting at like the Ohio Music Festival. Right? Then the question is, how do you take that successful bullet and then ma- scale it into a national cannonball? Ah. That, I think, is the challenge that the social sectors, in my view, uh, and maybe many others, uh has not yet done as well uh, as you can da- say do inside a given organization. And inside a company, inside an organization, it's easy to do. When you step outside into an entire sector, uh, it becomes much more difficult. And when we I'd like to maybe even also suggest that there's a really critical step. We're, we got this thing we just have, the the turning the flywheel monograph. You can build a flywheel inside your own organization, and we can talk about that for a minute. But as my friend Kim Smith from uh, New School Venture Fund put it, but in the social sectors, there's also this thing called the Uber flywheel, (laughs) which is the flywheel of an entire movement, the flywheel of an entire sector. And somehow, how do you go from a flywheel that works well with a single organization into building the Uber flywheel of, say, all of education or all of the arts or all of homeless questions That transition is enormously difficult and is still, I think, one of the opportunities for people to solve that problem. I don't think it's been solved all that well yet.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the great distinctions you make between the business sector and the social sector. In the business, you're supposed to compete and try to beat the other guys, where in the social sector you're trying to solve a problem that affects thousands, if not millions of people. Well, let's turn to uh, that new monograph, Turning the Flywheel, what a great image, Jim. Uh, describe it for us.
2: So, so the, the flywheel principle came uh, from, from good to great, right. and, uh, and the idea is, is this, is that if you really study how a good-to-great transition happens, looking in from the outside, it can look like it was this instantaneous breakthrough and something leapt from good to great, and there it was. Wow. Overnight. Uh-huh. But if you really study how it actually happens it's like turning a giant heavy flywheel. You start pushing in an intelligent and consistent direction, and after a lot of effort, you get one giant, slow, creaky turn. And then you get, you stay in that direction, and you eventually get two turns, and you keep pushing, and you get four turns, and you keep pushing, and you get eight, and 16, and 32, mm-hmm. and 100, and 1,000, and 10,000, and then a million, and that flywheel's got all this cumulative momentum. Whoosh, around it goes, and boom, there's this breakthrough. And if you were to look at it and say, well, wait a minute, what was the one big push that made it go? It's kind of a nonsense question because it's been push upon push creating cumulative effect over time. That's the basic flywheel principle is you need to come at it as a flywheel, not an event.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to talk about a couple of examples in the social sector, but I think a wonderful way to describe it, and something that all listeners can uh, relate to, and the company that you've worked with, is Amazon. Why don't you descri- des- describe to us the design of their flywheel? Yeah,
2: so after, after Good to Great uh, was published, just right after it was published, I was asked to go up to uh, Amazon in Seattle in 2001, mm-hmm. this was the middle of the wake of the dot-com bust. The dark ages. And, and I met with the board and, and, uh, uh, and the executive team and so forth, and all I did was teach the ideas. I can't really take credit for, in any way for their great flywheel because what they did was they took that flywheel principle that came from good to great, and they said, we're going to make the flywheel our, our own. That's the wonderful thing about great students, is they can take what you teach and make it even better, yep. and Amazon did. And so this is where the turning the flywheel monograph kind of got its start was how amazon took the principle and really extended it so what they did was they said you need to know how your flywheel turns think about it this way here you go it starts think of it as a circle goes around and each component drives the next component so top of the flywheel lower prices on more offerings Mm. right and if you do that that's going to increase customer visits to the amazon site and if you do that then that's going to get attract third-party sellers and then if you do that, that's going to allow you to extend the store and expand distribution. And if you do that, you're going to grow revenues per fixed costs. And if you do that, that's going to allow you to lower prices on more stuff, which allows you to increase customer visits, attract third-party sellers, expand the store, extend distribution, grow revenues per fixed costs, and around yet again. And if you think about what Amazon has done over the last two decades, it is in many ways – building that flywheel Mm -hmm. and notice it's not a single event it's not a single moment it's not a single aha it is a massive cumulative momentum machine
1: yeah what i did notice too is that there is an incredible underlying logic to it all because every one of those things you said made the next step almost inevitable exactly that's the key is a flywheel is not and this is what something people really need
2: to grasp and part of why I wrote this new monograph because I found people working with a flywheel but not getting it right. So I wanted to help them get it right. And uh, essentially, a flywheel is not a list of aspirations drawn as a circle or a (laughs) list of action steps drawn as a circle. It's capturing the underlying logic of momentum that if we do A, then that's going to inevitably lead to B. And if we do B really well, it will inevitably lead to C and around back to the top. And if you have somewhere between four and six components that reinforce reinforced like that, and you do them really well and you understand that architecture, it can create tremendous momentum. For sure.
1: Well, let's turn to the social sector and one of the most admired healthcare institutions in the world is the Cleveland Clinic. You include that in your book. Walk us through their flywheel.
2: So uh, the Cleveland Clinic is, <clears throat> is a marvelous example uh, of a flywheel. And it goes all the way back to uh, the early part of the 20th century when some physicians went off to World War I and what they were struck by is the collaborative nature of dealing with casualties on the battlefield. Right? You, when people come in off the battlefield, you don't say, oh, that's not my specialty or what's my bonus going to be on this or what's my reimbursement rate. Like, you want to save lives and you want to get people back to the people that they love. Right? And everybody would unify together to to, to do as to get, the, to get the job done. And they came back and they said, we want to create a healthcare care organization, uh, and they were from Cleveland, mm-hmm. that captures that same spirit. And so they built this thing where they said, we need, we need physicians who are going to be ones who can work collaboratively, who aren't going to be worried about what their reimbursement rate is or any of that. They want to join the cause of we're going to do great medical work together collaboratively to get stuff done. So their flywheel starts with get the right medical professionals, right? It's get the people who can do that. And if we get the right uh, professionals, then that's going to allow us to create a culture of collaboration for patient-centered care, that medical professionals who want to work together for the benefit of the patient will create that culture. And If we create that culture, then we can't help but work across specialties for the best health outcomes Mm because that's how they happen and if we do that well then we can't help but attract patients who want to come here because we do that so well and we're going to get them from all over the world and if we do that that's going to fuel our resource engine right we're going to be able to fund this machine to do better work and if we do that then we can invest in the best facilities and research and getting more of the right people which then brings us right back to the top of the flywheel (laughs) fill the system with the right medical professionals, and drive that flywheel around. That flywheel, in some form or another, has been turning for 100 years.
1: Yeah. So when I first heard about the flywheel, I initially thought, this is for CEOs and those at the top of the organization. But that actually is not the case. And you give a wonderful example from a public school principal in Kansas. Now share that with us.
2: Oh, so, so Denver, this is one of the most exciting things for me. So I've been doing this research on K twelve education, uh, because I uh, I share with Wendy Cott this just deep belief that as as a kid in this country, the quality of your education by the time you're age eighteen should have nothing to do with where you were born. And so I really wanted to study how leaders created great schools in difficult settings. And so I was I was doing this research, and I came across uh, that the, a lot of them built flywheels inside their schools. And one of them that I put in in the monograph. Is where elementary school, a public uh, elementary school in rural Kansas, on a military base, and what uh, what this school principal did, Deb Gustafson, mm-hmm. right, she's been turning the supply wheel for now almost two decades. When she came in, the the kids were not reading at the levels that they needed to, and she just felt this sense of moral responsibility. You know, you and I uh, both admire uh, Michael J. Fox and how he took on the Parkinson's uh, challenge of, like, I have a moral responsibility to do something, not just to deal with it myself, but to help others, right? Mm -hmm. And she felt this moral sense of responsibility that, no, the kids have got to get their reading by grade three, otherwise we have failed them. The kids haven't failed. We will have failed and so, But then she said, how am I going to do this in this rural military base area where I've got a lot of turnover, I don't have access to lots of talent? And so she said, my flywheel is going to key off of one thing. I can't get enough experienced teachers, but I can find passionate young teachers. Mm-hmm. So she said, start of my flywheel, I want to select teachers who are infused with passion. And if they're infused with passion, they're going to want to learn from others in the building who already know how to teach. So that's going to allow us to build these collaborative improvement teams. And if you've got those collaborative improvement teams working really well, then that's going to drive them to say, how are we doing? And we're going to assess our student progress early and often. And if we do that, and we really do it student by student, we're eventually going to turn that into achieving learning every single kid. And then if we do that, that's going to enhance our reputation as a school as a great place to teach. Mm -hmm. And if we enhance our reputation as a great place to teach, that's going to allow more people coming from places like Kansas State University who are going to want to start their teaching career to say, I want to go there because that's got a great reputation as a great place to teach. We will replenish the passionate teacher pipeline and then select more of those teachers and around the flywheel we'll go. And here's the beauty. She didn't sit around and wait for, gosh, I'm going to wait for education reform to fix education. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? She just said, I have a responsibility for my kids and my school, and I am going to do something about it. And she built a flywheel.
1: Yeah. And she's got incredible results uh, for those she kids. She absolutely did. She got those reading rates up from something in the 30s to pretty
2: close to 100%, yeah. and she stayed there. She's been on this flywheel now for coming up on two decades.
1: So, let's say I'm with a nonprofit organization and I'm listening to you, and I'm really interested. The question I would have is where do I start the flywheel? How do I determine the starting point? How do you do that? so uh, so there's
2: uh, it sort of depends on where you are in the journey yeah. uh, but but basically, the flywheel is is should be a an empirical exercise, not a theoretical exercise. Mm-hmm. And so, what I always like to suggest people do is, Uh, if they if they're not a startup, right startup then you basically maybe want to learn just almost copy the best of a flywheel from someone else. But if you've got some experience, with your folks, with your people, make a list of your significant successes of things that have been working. And then uh, that could be repeated. And then also make a list of disappointments. Like what Hmm. has not worked? So you have your own sort of set of empirical experiences. And then if you say, well, okay, if we really look at this, uh, what what flywheel could best explain what actually works and what doesn't work? So you essentially build up from your successes and failures to then impute what the flywheel at its best actually is. But one of the really critical questions you always have to ask is where does the flywheel start, even though it repeats? Remember, Amazon started with lower prices. It's an economic flywheel. And uh, Cleveland Clinic and Ware Elementary started with getting the right people. Mm-hmm. Intel starts with making the right chips, right? Mm-hmm. It's about uh, it's an innovation flywheel. And so the key is then to say, what's really the essence of our flywheel? Is it going to be data? Is it going to be uh, uh, maybe knowledge about r- disease? Is it going to be a certain type of person? And one of the big debates to have with your team is – what should be the starting point of our flywheel because it's both signaling and conceptual clarity, both. Mm -hmm.
1: Can you extend a flywheel?
2: Well, that's one of the wonderful things about flywheels is that uh, a flywheel is not just a kind of a specific arena. It can be something that allows you to extend into new areas. So let's just go back to the Cleveland Clinic one I spoke about earlier. You know, Cleveland Clinic – uh, started out, uh, it, you know, really became known for what it did in heart uh, and vascular, right? But as it began to expand and gain more capabilities, it began to move into, you know, other arenas of, of health delivery and, and and health improvement and wellness and being and so forth as it began to extend. And here's the key. The underlying architecture of the flywheel, get the, get the right people in there, work in the collaborative environment, work across specialties, solve the patient problems, right? do it in a way that brings in the resource engine, et cetera. All that's still the same, but they've been able to extend, and they've even been able to extend outside of Cleveland to places like Abu Dhabi and other places because the flywheel remains intact, but you're able to expand
1: based upon that flywheel architecture. One last question about the flywheel. Can you have a personal flywheel, and if you can, what would yours be? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, it's, it's very interesting uh, that, that I, I, I thought
2: about this because people started to ask me what's my own flywheel, but <laughs> I haven't had one for a very long time. It goes all the way back to when I was 30. I'm 61, so I've been mm-hmm. on this flywheel for about, about 31 years. And uh, the flywheel begins, my flywheel begins um, – with curiosity mm-hmm. that's what really motivates me i'm just a really curious person and uh... my flywheel uh... the curiosity then inevitably leads me to want to ask big questions And if I ask big questions, then I have to want to answer them with rigorous research, right? I don't want to just have an opinion. I want to have research. And if I do rigorous research, that's going to lead to insights, like preserve the core, stimulate progress, and level five leaders and so forth, and be able to put those in a conceptual wrapping paper that people will grab them. And then if I do that, then I can't help but want to – to share them to teach them mm-hmm. to disseminate them like our conversation right now, I love sharing the ideas I can't <laughs> if we have them I'm a teacher at heart I want to share them yeah. and if I if I share them well then that has impact on the world and that impact on the world translates into ultimately being able to fund because People will will, you know, support the work because they, they you know, they they bought a lot of books, but I never did this to sell books. I right. did this to answer questions. Mm-hmm. But the books then feed the next questions and the next piece of research, right, which then I channel right back in to doing the next set of good questions so that I can continue the flywheel of curiosity. Mine is all about questions, insights, and teaching.
1: Well, let me pick up on that because I love the curiosity and I love the questions. And it's no surprise that when you advise someone, you don't provide them with answers, but you're going to pepper them with questions, more like an executive coach, I think, than a consultant. And I believe that asking the right question has to be one of the more underappreciated skills in the world. Now, this certainly may not be one, but what makes for a good question? Ooh, boy. (laughs) Uh, so, so there's a, first
2: of all, I agree with you completely about, about questions and maybe just even zoom a a step out on this about how profound it is to change from an answer orientation to a question Mm -hmm. orientation. I I share this story at the beginning of the social sectors monograph, but a profound moment in my life was when the, the great thinker and wise man, John Gardner, who'd been secretary of health, education and welfare in the Johnson administration and founder of common cause he was a senior emeritus professor down the hall for me at Stanford when I was 30. And one day, he, I was in his office, and he looked at me, and he said, Jim, it occurs to me you spend way too much time trying to be interesting. <laughs> Why don't you invest more time in being interested? It's one of those things where a great teacher changes your life in 30 seconds. And I walked away from that thinking, Wow, that, I'm going to try to change that. And so I think that was a place that activated the desire for questions, like be interested, mm-hmm. and interesting things will happen. Then over time, I learned, uh, I constantly refined the, que- uh, the, the pursuit of questions, asking the right questions. And I think the essence of a really good question begins first with listening, Because you want to be really listening, and then you also want to be able to say – and by the way, it's more tiring. Here's an interesting little factoid. I've noticed that when I'm tired, if I'm sleep-deprived, for example, or exhausted or something, I will ask fewer questions, and I will say more things.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Why is that? Well, because actually listening and asking questions is much harder than saying something. Yeah, And so I think the art of a good question first is you're really present. You're really listening. You're there with the other person or the other people. And then the second is a really good question is one where you don't know the answer when you ask it. Huh. Yeah. Because if you know, I mean, it, it, for, for me, if I know, if I'm basically, um, if, if there isn't any real curiosity in the question, uh, then it's not really something where there's a, a real conversation. Now, some questions you ask to lead someone somewhere because you really want to get them to understand something. But sometimes you really want to say, like, can you help me understand that or tell me about this person or uh, I- I'm really curious what you learned from so-and-so. Right? Those are questions that open conversations. Yeah. And when I, when, I, um, when I meet someone I always like to start with something to be interested about them. And what I found with that is conversation is always at its best if you're interested in them first, and then an interesting conversation will happen.
1: I agree. And, you know, active listening really means you're not thinking about what you're going to say next. Exactly. And it's also trusting that whatever question may come next, it will take care of itself. Through the act of listening instead of having to be prepared for after he says this, I'm going here. Exactly.
2: And sometimes there's you know, there's a a, when I prepare for what I call a lab session, I don't do consulting of any traditional sense. Right. But people will bring like an executive group or maybe gatherings of CEOs or whatever to Boulder and we call them dialogue sessions because I basically ask questions. And uh and and what I what I have found is that if you ask people really good questions, it accelerates a conversation and accelerates their insight. And sometimes you ask a question, and then you don't say anything for 30 minutes. Yeah, right.
1: So, well, let me tell you something I'm interested in, and that's how you communicate your ideas mm-hmm. and concepts with such vivid imagery. I mean, we have the hedgehog concept, uh, the 20-mile march, uh, time tellers versus clock builders, the flywheel effect, for goodness sake, uh, and others. It's a really a great way to teach and provide stickiness to these ideas. How did this get started with you, Jim, and where do you come up with these ideas? Well, so
2: so the ideas first, just to be very clear, uh, I, I never confuse the communication of an idea with the Discovery of an idea. Right. So the first thing is you, you've got to do your research, or do your work, so that the ideas that you're communicating are really grounded in something where you have confidence that what you're teaching, like preserve the course-related progress, or the flywheel effect, or be a clock builder, do more clock building, less time telling. Right? They have years of research behind mm-hmm. them, but then you have this interesting question, which is, how do you get somebody to really engage with an idea? And this was something that, uh, that Joanne taught me. She had done some work on the question of which ideas tend to have impact more than others. And so you, can't, you have to have the ideas from the research, but she taught me about this thing about uh, wrapping and unwrapping ideas.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Or she said, look, uh, if, if I say to you, do you have leaders? Well, you'll say, well, yeah, we have leaders, but we don't even know if we're talking about the same thing. Yeah, if I right. say to you, do you have level five leaders? now you have to stop. Mm-hmm. Now I've given you a package and that package is wrapped in this thing. The wrapping paper is level five leadership. And you have to now unwrap this and say, well, what is level five? And how's a five different than a four? And what does that mean? What's the concept behind it? And then you unwrap it like unwrapping a gift. Yeah. And then you rewrap it. And now you have the idea. And that I learned from Joanne. She really taught me how to do that. And then the second thing is this. Um, I always think about what's the right conceptual vehicle for a concept. So sometimes a vehicle is like a stage process. When I studied how companies fall five stages of decline, right, mm-hmm. it's a stage concept. But like preserve the core, stimulate progress, Jerry and I talked a long time. What kind of concept? It's a dialectic, like thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? It's a dialectic concept. Level five is like Maslow's hierarchy. Level one, level two, level three, level four, level five, and you move through the the, the progression. So what I've learned is that you really have to always ask, what's the right conceptual vessel? Equation, analogy, dialectic, stage, hierarchy, Venn diagram, right? Could be a mathematical equation, What's the conceptual vehicle to, to best capture this concept, and then what's the wrapping paper that will help people engage with it?
1: And that takes creativity. So, what stimulates your creativity? What kind of inputs?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Well, so part of it is I'm just kind of fanatic about uh, about creative hours, and uh, as people who know, we have this concept called the 20 mile march, which is you you set out like you're walking across the United States, and you you do. You know, you have to do at least 20 miles a day every day, right? And Mm -hmm. then eventually get to the other side of the country. And it's a principle that came out of the great by choice research with Morton. But uh, I've always had a 20-mile march, which is I measure my creative hours every day. Mm -hmm. I basically ask, how many creative hours should I get? And to me, a creative hour is anything that contributes directly uh, to uh, something that might be a new idea or a new creation that could be replicable and uh, and so at the end of every day i put in a spreadsheet how many creative hours i got that day it can be 0 it could be 8 it could mm-hmm. usually somewhere you know in between but every 365 day cycle such as today uh, to 365 days ago has to be above 1,000 hours. Hmm. So I actually rigorously hold myself to account that I have to get 1,000 creative hours every 365-day cycle for 50 years without (laughs) missing. And I manage my life and my time that way, so therefore I manage my commitments very carefully to leave lots of vessel time for creative time. The second is that uh, I find you know it's always a combination of research. I love to read way outside my field
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, I just finished uh taking a course on Uh, The History of the Black Death in the 1300s. I mean, I don't know what that has to do with anything Mm -hmm. I'm studying, except it stimulates ideas. I love to read voraciously. Uh, I love conversation. You and I had a conversation before we began today about some people that we both admire, right? And what we learn from that. And and then the research itself. And a lot of it is you're always listening for something you're processing, you're processing, you're processing, and then something pops out of your mouth.
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: And and you go, wow, that's an interesting idea. And it's like you grab it before it disappears, and you write it down. And I keep on my my iPad, I have a little thing called Creative Insights. And any time something occurs to me, like I'll share with you one. I was doing a dialogue session with a group of folks from outside this country. I challenged them to work on their flywheel, and then we moved to challenging them to think about their own 20-mile march. And I had this insight that I hadn't had before. The best 20-mile marches connect to the very top component of the flywheel. Huh. I didn't know that, and I, I mean, I, I, I even though I developed the concepts in that session, there was this flash of aha, <laughs> and now forever I have that understanding. Yeah,
1: well, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Jim, but you are a bit of a freak. You realize that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, uh, I am actually, yes. and I, I uh, you know, it, it, but I'm, but I, I'm so curious that I kind of can't help but be. Yeah. And I so love sharing and teaching uh, the ideas that I can't help but be, and and I'm really, you know, I'm really a very fortunate person because I stumbled on these questions of what makes a great organization, a great company, a great enterprise tick, and they occupied me for 30 years. I'm moving on to new questions now, but but uh, for my next 30 years, if I'm lucky enough health-wise to be granted uh, another 30 years, my, my role model in many ways was Peter Drucker and people like John Gardner, and they had a really long run. Uh, and I hope to be just as freaky for the next 30 uh, with also integrating in some other, you know, interesting artistic adventures and so forth. But I just... I get up and i i I just love the journey,
1: yeah, yeah, and a great story you have about Peter Drucker is that you know at in his mid sixties he had written a bunch of books, and you would think that was about it, but he wasn't even close to being done, correct oh my,
2: so it, so this is uh I was really lucky because I got a uh Peter was almost exactly fifty years older than me, I was born in nineteen fifty eight he was mm-hmm. born in nineteen o nine and I went down and visited him when I was 36, just at the time I was leaving, uh, to go off on my own, to set up my own research path and to be an entrepreneurial professor. And um, and I, I asked uh, Peter on that day, he was 86,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, I said, uh, which of your 26 books are you most proud of? And he said, the next one. <laughs> and he wrote 10 more. Yeah. And I have – I'm literally looking at it right now. Um, I have a picture of all of Peter's books based on the year that he uh, laid out sequentially uh, on the year that he wrote them. And it starts with the end of Economic Man and goes all the way to the end. Uh, And I – when I was asked to give the keynote for Drucker's uh, 100th centennial – he had died a few years earlier – but at at, at Claremont at the Drucker Foundation – I went and I I looked at the bookshelf, and I asked, where was he age 65 on this shelf? And the answer was he was one-third of the way across the shelf at age 65. Mm -hmm. He had two-thirds of his life's writings left to go when he was 65 years old. And I have that picture, and I'm 61, and so I keep a little note to myself that's Kind of around 25 percent. That is,
1: you are here. Yeah, yeah. Well, what an inspirational note to close on. Other than this, um, what are you going to do for the next 30 years? Um, what's got you curious now, and what are you currently working on?
2: Well, so I'm I'm uh, uh, I'm I'm turning my attention to uh, larger questions. I feel that the 30 years of work on what makes great companies tick is. I will always teach those ideas, what makes greater enterprises in the social sector stick through that. I'll always teach those ideas. But I think my core research on that is um, coming to a close. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm now turning to the question of – I did a project on K-12. I'm not sure what I'm going to do exactly with that yet. But the big one is the question of self-renewal, inspired by John Gardner. And uh, and I'm looking at that question about why some people do that really well over the long course of time. People like Peter, people like John, and others. Um, But in the end, before I'm I'm done, if I'm granted health-wise, I think I understand organizational renewal really well. Uh, What I'd really, in the end, love to have is a three-layered cake of a contribution. Individual self-renewal, organizational self-renewal, and societal renewal. Mm. And if I could, before I'm done, contribute insight on all three layers and how they interrelate, individual renewal, organizational renewal, and societal renewal, uh, I feel that I will have done perhaps something useful.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, listening to you, you certainly know you have that fire in the belly. Well, Jim Collins, entrepreneurial professor and author of Good to Great and the Social Sectors, as well as Turning the Flywheel, among other books. I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. If people are interested in learning more about some of these concepts, tell us about your website and what visitors visitors are going to find there.
2: So it's jimcollins.com, and everything there is freely available for everyone. It's all built around the concepts. I think of it as kind of cyber office hours where you can come and <laughs> hang out with the entrepreneurial
1: professor, and learn. Well, Jim, uh, thanks for being here. It was a real pro- uh, pleasure and privilege to have you on the program. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this.
0: The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at bizofgive on Twitter and at facebook.com businessofgiving.